Welcome back to Old Books with Grace. Season four is here. I'm so excited. I have a lot of fun bookish conversations queued up for you this fall from uh, today's conversation to George MacDonald to Christian poetry off the beaten path. And I can't wait to share them with you. Uh, Before we get into the interview today, I want to share that my first book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages is coming out in six weeks, which is unbelievable. Um, I want to put in a little plug here. If you'd like to get your hands on this book in advance, my publisher is offering a launch group that I am participating in as well, and it has discussions and some other phone bonuses, plus the fact that you get to read it before everybody else does. Um, If you're interested, the link to sign up is in the show notes, and all you need to do is pre-order the book and uh, click on that link and set it up. Uh, Links are also in my social media bios. And on Instagram, that is at Old Books with Grace. And on Twitter, that is at Grace Hammond, PhD. And Hammond is spelled like Ham Man, in case you're wondering. Well, today I welcome Elizabeth Felicetti to chat about the gift of childless women to the historical church, a subject she explores in her new book, Unexpected Abundance, The Fruitful Lives of Women Without Children. This subject is disturbingly timely. I feel like every few months, Christians um, on social media weirdly debate the role of single and childless people and the issue that these folks are often made to feel less holy human and less holy Christians than parents. But childless people, men and women, are whole humans and whole Christians and gifts to the church. The Reverend Elizabeth Felicetti is the rector of St. David's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia, and the author of Unexpected Abundance. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Christian Century, and numerous other places. She holds a Master of Divinity from Virginia Theological Seminary and an MFA in writing from Spalding University. Welcome, Reverend Felicetti. I'm so pleased that you are here on Old Books with Grace. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I love this podcast. It's one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. So being a listener, you are well prepared that I have my favorite get-to-know-you questions for guests on the podcast. The first is, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? I gave this um, a lot of thought. I've, I've thought. I've have thought over the last year when I've listened to you speaking to other people. Who would I choose? And I am answering Theodore Dreiser, who wrote at the turn of the twentieth century, and his prose is um, somewhat plodding, and he was not necessarily um, the most enlightened of men, he, and. It, he was frankly kind of a misogynist, but I I love his work in particular, the book Sister Carrie, which came out in 1900. But the the publisher wanted to 
it was Doubleday, wanted to withdraw their offer of the book. So only 1,000 copies were printed. They did almost no publicity. And I used to sell rare books, and that was one of the the rarest. And I used to collect Theodore Dreiser, and that was sort of the, the big white whale of, of books of his. So I would say Theodore Dreiser, especially Sister Carrie, although I also loved An American Tragedy, which came out in the 1920s. Oh my gosh, that is so fun because that's an answer that I have not heard before, which is really cool. Um, I have to confess I have not read any Theodore Dreiser, but that sounds um, so interesting and complex with the publishing history, which is always a fun little, I don't I love knowing things like that, behind the scenes facts. That's really fun. Right. If it were just his writing on his own, I don't know that it would be as interesting, except that he was pretty revolutionary in how realistically he wrote about um, lower classes and um, sexual relations. So, it, you know, he really was a bit of a pioneer. Interesting. Um, yeah. Oh, maybe a new name to add to my list of people to read, which is, oh, alas, always increasing at a greater rate than I can actually complete it. Um, <laughs> So the second question I have for you is, which literary character do you most identify with and why? That one was easier for me. That would be Margaret Gower from Gail Godwin's Father Melancholy's Daughter and Evensong. She, uh, in Father Melancholy's Daughter, she loses her mother when she's six years old, which also happened to me. Mm. And by the end of the book, she pursues ordination in the Episcopal church. And I, I remember telling one of my friends, you know, over 20 years ago when I first read the book, you know, how much I loved Father Melancholy's daughter. And she said, that's because you are Margaret. And I do <laughs> identify very strongly with, with her. Wow. That was that such a strange experience reading something that so closely echoed your personal like life arc, it it did in in those ways. On the other hand, um, she so I haven't read the book, so a, I don't know what you know what else happened. In it might be quite <laughs> and, and was probably more religious as a young person than than I was, but had a very close relationship with her father, who was a priest, which my father definitely was not. But um, it it really. It was a formative book for me, and I was ecstatic when there was um, a sequel mm -hmm. years later. So I just finished reading your new book, Unexpected Abundance, The Fruitful Lives of Women Without Children. And in it, you explore uh, women who are mostly women throughout history with a few uh, contemporary folks sprinkled in Um but you explore women throughout history, including from scripture, uh, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and, and the 19th century, and uh, but women who did not have children and why their lives are just as full and just as much uh, womanhood as women who are mothers. And would you like to tell listeners a little bit more about this project and your work with it? I would love to. Thank you. I have, as a, as a woman without children myself, I have often heard from other people 
you know, you'll understand one day when you have children of your own. And that's that's just not something that happens to everyone. Just like, you know, I'm married, but I recognize that not everyone experiences marriage. We can be fully human and fully women, even when we don't have children. I was unable to have them myself. And this is really a book that I wish had been around at the times that I was trying to have children um, more than 20 years ago. I wish that someone had held up to me how beautiful and fruitful life could be without children, mm -hmm. because it seemed that most of the books that were available showed someone who went through a hard time in their process to have a child, but eventually they would have a child either through fertility treatment or adoption. And I want women to understand that, um, you know, there is another option, which would be a beautiful, fruitful life without a child. Yeah. Sometimes it, it seems like uh the church in particular, Christians in particular, get into a sort of damaging groove or, or like a narrative that you aren't really a Christian unless your life follows X rhythms. So fill in the blank on what that is. But one of those fill in the blank words that seems to be very common for uh, women is becoming a mother, right? Uh, or getting married. Um, like it's the most central calling when you are a woman and uh on <laughs> men just generally speaking don't usually get talked about this way like oh uh you're not a, a true man until you experience fatherhood or that you're limited somehow until you experience fatherhood that's not right. really people like a narrative right here <laughs> right like people don't say well jesus didn't have children so he didn't get it <laughs> right right no like this is definitely a gendered uh, experience in a lot of ways and so uh what do you think is at stake as you look at, especially the historical women whose lives you discuss, um, who are not mothers in relation to this kind, this kind of narrative or this kind of story that people tell about what makes women full women? Um, and how can looking at historical women who aren't mothers help us, which is the us being people in general, not just uh including including both women without children, women with children, and men, too, that there's all kinds of stuff here by looking at these lives. Um, how can, sorry, that was a very long question, but how can, how can looking at historical women's lives do that? What's going on? One of the things that I've often heard, or at least felt like was said to me by the church, was that it was more... Um, biblical to have children. So I had, I started these, this study with the Bible to show that there were some very important women in the Bible who did not have children. Mm. And like the word, I use the word barren a lot in the book, but all of the women in the Bible who were described as barren actually went on to have children, but there were amazing women like um, Hulda, a, a prophet who did not have children, or um, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha. We are not aware of any children that that they may have had, and yet they were incredibly fruitful and essential to the church. With other historical women, the one that leaps to mind is Queen Elizabeth I. Mm. 
that it was a really big deal that she did not get married and did not have children. And that made the issue of succession a really big deal because they wanted to know, well, you know, who's going to rule after her? It seemed they were always looking ahead, which makes sense since it was very tumultuous before she became queen with um, her brother and her sister succeeding Henry VIII and not having very long reigns before their their deaths. And it, one, one of my favorite things I learned in reading and researching for this book was that at one point she actually made discussion of the succession illegal. Mm. I thought, how how useful that would be for many women, um, perhaps especially right after getting married, when people start asking, when are you going to have to have children? But I think it's essential, just from an inspirational perspective, for us to see models of fruitful women who did not bear biological children, so that we can see that they can have full and human and impressive lives. I also think that there's a bit of a taboo, understandably, um, about saying that there are costs to having children, that if we say mm -hmm. yes to children, then we're saying no to something else. And there's a narrative, I think, in wanting to say that we can have all of these things, which I, I know that we can. There are so many women who have children and amazing careers, amazing relationships. We can do all of those things. But children do take up a space that those of us who do not have children can then fill with something else. Mm -hmm. But I feel that because it's been so important to show that women who are mothers can still succeed in every way as, as men can, that then sometimes we dismiss that women without children um, or people without children can also sometimes do things that people with um, with children cannot. And even then I qualified it by saying sometimes there really is. Well, I really appreciated that you uh, were honest about this in, in this book, looking at these different lives, calling attention to the kinds of things that given uh, each woman's place and culture that uh, their, either their vocation or their life circumstances, whatever had led them to not um, having children or not being able to have children, that that room in their life allowed them to do some very remarkable things. Um, and so it's, and I, what I appreciated so much is that that is a, it's, it is, you're right. It's a very like tense and fraught topic, even to say out loud, but the practical fact of the matter is that people have different life shapes and if we're saying, no, everyone's the same and everyone can do exactly the same things, well, we all know that's not true when it applies to other things. Right. I could, uh, you know, everybody has different gift sets and different skill sets and different callings and different life shapes. And so I think you're acknowledging something that's actually common sense. And it's not like a rule that applies like a strict, hard and fast rule, right, to different lives. Like, well, if you have children, you can't do X. And if you don't have children, you can. But that there's a unique space and a different life shape for people with and without children. And that's, I mean, a basic life fact. Um, and I say that as a woman who has children and has, you know, 
uh, written and done things that I didn't think I could do with the, with the time I have, but also knowing my life would take a totally different shape if they weren't there. Um, and so this, I love how you're calling attention to that our lives have fruitfulness within these different shapes of being and living. And that's really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of different shapes and different ways of being and living, um, before we get into the uh, historical figures a little bit more in depth, I wanted to focus on a particular image that I really enjoyed personally while, uh, while I was reading your book, which is that you and I are both originally from Phoenix, which is always really fun to meet another person from Phoenix because uh, neither of us live in Phoenix anymore. So it's just kind of fun. Um, and funnily enough, uh, in a podcast episode last season, I had mentioned this Mexican restaurant that my family used to go to growing up. And then you reached out to me after the episode and said, your family used to go there too. So that was um, that was such a fun moment for me of being like, oh my gosh, another Los Compadres fan. Um, I was, I was, I, I don't remember your guest, but I remember, I, and I think that you had talked about it being closed. And I think that was my, yes. that I realized it had been closed. And so I was really excited that, that you were from Phoenix too. And I was horrified that Los Compadres isn't Sad. Rest in peace, Los Compadres. Um, it was, uh, I think it was one of my Advent episodes where I didn't have a guest where I was just uh, meandering on about my feelings about a poem that made me feel really sad and my life experiences that made me feel sad. One of which was this restaurant closing. Um, but <laughs> so, but you talk about, uh, yeah, you know, it's so sad. Um, it was a wonderful restaurant. But you begin, you set the scene of your book with this image of growing up in the Sonoran Desert, which is where Phoenix is. Um and the desert is often called barren, which is the word that you describe your tensions with and your interest in and trying to unpack um, this very fraught word. Uh, and I love how you use this desert imagery to describe different forms of a fruitful life. The desert doesn't look like where you live now in Virginia with its yeah. super rich, lush forest. It doesn't look like where I live now. Um how does beginning with the desert relate to the women that you discuss with the book? Why are you beginning with the Sonoran Desert? I think it relates very much to what you were saying earlier about um, if you had not had children, your life would have taken a very different shape. And the desert does, you know, obviously does not have the same water that I have here in Virginia where uh, it it rains very often and where everything is green and mushrooms um, grow in our yard, um, you know, every week, but it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of growth and life, but there is so much growth mm -hmm. of life. There are plants that have had to adapt and, you know, being from Phoenix, how breathtaking, um, saguaro cactus are. And that's something, you know, they draw water differently. They live a very long time and they're absolutely gorgeous and filled with life, but they're very different than um, oak trees or hickory trees or, you know, gumball trees or all of the different things that I see here in Virginia. But I realized 
you know, especially when I would um, travel back to Arizona, which I, I do every year, usually several times a year, you know, going out, um, driving between Phoenix and Prescott, which is something that my family does a lot, that that desert landscape was just gorgeous and really feeds my soul mm. and made me think that, you know, if this, if this is what it means to be barren, then barren is beautiful. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a different kind of, of life, but there is life and fruit in the desert. I love that. Um, I tell people who haven't been to Phoenix or to the desert, to the Sonoran Desert, that they need to go uh, in March when the desert, when desert spring is really coming alive. And also the orange trees are very fragrant. Um, and it's just to me, it's like a little foretaste of heaven. Um, and But you wouldn't know it if you had never been and you wouldn't assume that. Uh, and so there's this way of paying attention in the desert that uh, you don't see that uh, immediate like new greenery like you do on the East Coast, but it is so beautiful and so vibrant um, when you're paying attention. And I love yeah. that you begin with that image. Well, and I, and I think that can be so true for those of us without children as well, is that um, I, I love children and they're such a gift and it's so easy to see for me, you know, as a very religious people, the, the image of God and gifts of God in a child. But there's also, there's also beauty uh, in the spaces without children and we just might need to look a little harder or a little differently. Mm. So, relatedly, we today sometimes forget that there's a very rich, a very, very rich and long tradition in the church of women who lived out a vocation without children. Um, and this is especially hard for Protestants to remember, um, since a lot of uh, professed religious life went away for a long time for Protestants after the Reformation. Um, but it also happened outside of being a professed religious. Um, and so the association of womanhood or femininity with motherhood is really not as present in the most ancient Christian sources or culture. This is actually a fairly recent post-Reformation association for Christians. Um, and so you talk about uh, Julian of Norwich, who's one of my all-time favorite writers, but I I wanted to ask you to describe a little bit about the other medieval mystical writers you choose, um, St. Catherine of Siena and St. Clair of Assisi, uh, just because their lives are so interesting. And we do know a little bit more about them, uh, biographically speaking, than we do about Julian. And so it's kind of fun to dive in. So what do these women uh, teach us? What do their lives show us today? Well, Claire, uh, in particular, just fascinates me. I really didn't know much about her until seminary when we learned about her in conjunction with St. Francis. But like St. Francis, she was very dedicated to poverty. And like Francis, she came from um, a fairly wealthy family. But she was someone who was on track to, you know, marry someone wealthy and have children. And my my favorite and sort of, um, this horrifies me as a, you know, as a 
as a pastor, but on Palm Sunday, often the marriageable young women would be, you know, paraded around sort of debutante-like and would be <laughs> given palms. And she refused to um, be recognized in that way on a Palm Sunday. And then I think they still pressed the palms on her, but that was the night she ended up escaping from her family and going to Francis and having her, you know, beautiful long hair cut into a, a tonsure um, and then embracing poverty. And her family was horrified. They tried to get her to stop, but she insisted. And she wrote the first rule of life by a woman, and it was not uh, accepted until two days before her death. Mm. But she really embraced poverty in that, which was not something that the church necessarily wanted because when women entered monasteries, the money that would have been part of their dowry then went to the church. So they didn't like this um, embrace of voluntary poverty, but eventually they did go along with it. And she called her order, uh, the poor ladies. And Catherine of Siena, the more I read about her, um, she was, um, I found her very strange, but, mm -hmm. um, but, but fascinating. And she also, her family was originally not at all supportive of her way of life. They also had wanted her to um, go off and, and marry well. But so she, she ended up at first serving them as a servant. They were not nice to her at all until her father had a vision of her with a dove over her head or something. And then they gave her her own room and um, she ended up uh, becoming part of an order of women who lived in their homes. It was primarily widows. So they weren't off in a monastery like um, Claire or, or Hildegard, but she, you know, the, the very gruesome image that I just can't help but associate with her now is that she believed that she was betrothed to Jesus and that he had given her part of his circumcised foreskin as a ring. And I, that just, <laughs> So yep. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, one of those uh, classic medieval images that you're like, well, going to have to sit on that for a while. Not really sure what to do with that. Um, there's something really interesting and provocative and like uh, provocative in a good way, like challenging there that you're like, okay, what does this tell about? Um, tell us about the way that uh, women uh profess themselves to God, uh, to, to Christ in a very, it, like a marriage. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a story that you're like, okay, well, going to have to sit with that one for a little while. Think about that one. Cause that's, like Claire, she that's also interesting. Cut her hair off, which she did. Yeah. I was struck by that with both of those women, that that was a very interesting thing for them to do. And I think for both of them, that was the act that like pushed their family over into like outrage and locking them in their rooms or having them be the servant of the house, um, you know, punishing them was this rejection of, uh, of the wife and mother role by cutting their hair off and just, and declaring themselves un unmarriageable, not going to do it. Um, right. Right. So for them, there was certainly a push to um, become married and have children but they were able to follow what they believed for their vocations um, not to do that. Yeah. And this is one where it, 
I think they're interesting together because uh, sometimes you only associate um, the childlessness of some late medieval women with uh, becoming nuns, but both Claire and Catherine took unconventional routes. It wasn't like a, just like, oh, I'm called to be a nun and now I'm going to go into a convent and take this very traditional pattern of uh, giving my dowry, all this stuff, um, which was a very uh, socially acceptable route for uh, upper middle class women um, and rich women of the day, but that they both uh, went a step further and um, took a different path, which is really interesting to me. A rebellious path. A rebellious yeah. path. Yes. They were not actually, uh, they both caused their parents a lot of headaches. So. Yes, they did. <laughs> you know, they're so interesting. Um, I hadn't read much Catherine before this last year and um, and she was uh, so interesting to read and wrestle with. Uh, just bold, a bold woman. Yes, I, I, I struggled with her a bit, but definitely interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving into the Reformation after the Middle Ages, you and you already kind of brought up Queen Elizabeth and her decision to not marry and not have children and how much of a kerfuffle that caused. I mean, that was a huge deal for a long time for a lot of people. Um, But you also talk about somebody who's much less talked about, which is the deeply unfortunate Lady Jane Grey, um, who was queen for, what was it, nine days? Yes. Um, Some people said nine, although another writer pointed out it was technically 13, but not very long. mm. 13 days. Now tell us about Lady Jane Grey, who doesn't get as much historical attention as her much more famous cousin. I will. And I wonder if you would mind, I, that Jane Grey was not um, someone I intended to write about. She died so young. I intended Mm. to write about Anne Askew and Mm. in doing research about Anne Askew, I suddenly, when I was at the very end of my research and about ready to write, I came across a source that mentioned her husband and children. And I thought, uh, what, what, what? (laughs) How did I not know this? So suddenly I was panicked about, you know, who am I going to have um, from the English Reformation who did not have children? And I've always been fascinated, well, always, for many years, I've been fascinated by Lady Jane Grey. And I thought, you know, she was so young, I think maybe 17 when she mm. when she died. And so that that didn't seem quite right. On the other mm-hmm. hand, she's a little I, different than some of your other yes, women that yes, you choose. Really yeah. And so I thought maybe this, you know, maybe this is the Holy Spirit. So um, but Jane Gray was um someone who um King Edward wanted to uh, succeed him, although he had not changed the succession rule because he wanted the country to remain Protestant, but it was problematic um, to, you know, that his sister Elizabeth um, had been declared illegitimate Mm. after her mother was beheaded. And so he had, so it was hard for him to um, skip Mary in favor of Elizabeth, but in order to keep the crown away from Mary, um, 
many prominent Protestants wanted um, the country to remain Protestant as it was um, under Edward. So she was um, secretly married off to um, a duke's son and moved into the tower. She never had a, a coronation. It was somewhat controversial. And eventually, you know, after something like two weeks, um, she was declared not to be the queen and Mary became the queen. But Mary did not want to um, execute Jane Grey. But then after Jane's father, I think it was Jane's father, um, someone close to Jane led another rebellion, then she did end up becoming executed. But one thing I thought um, was relevant was that she refused to see her husband, who was, you know, somewhat forced on her. There was a movie about them that showed them as being in love, but that, you know, was pretty unlikely. He had wanted to come visit her before their death. And had that happened, um, if she had allowed that and then had become pregnant, that might have saved her life or at least delayed her death because they may not have wanted to behead someone who was pregnant and she um, refused to see him. So it does seem to me that she, you know, chose in a way to um, remain childless. She was also an extremely gifted theologian, a very um, brilliant woman, even though she was so young and she really was a pawn in these political aspirations of others, but she was a very committed Protestant. In and she's one of those women that you, you read about and it's, just such a, a a tragic story of a woman who was incredibly gifted and um, just kind of had the misfortune of having uh, an extremely ambitious father and an extremely ambitious father-in-law and an ambitious husband who all um, kind of put her in these situations and uh, and I and it's not that she didn't have any agency but that uh, you really see how like she. I think she tried to exercise her will where she could. And that, that last refusal of seeing um, her husband that night, even though it, you're right, it could have saved her at least for a matter of months and maybe for a while longer because um, the moods of the monarchs always changed. You never knew whether it would be a temporary stay or something more um, in those times. And so it was a real chance, but she didn't take it. Um, which is so interesting and intriguing. And I, uh, yeah, she's somebody that you wonder what the arc of her life would have looked like had she not been put in this impossible position of uh, being a, a rather unpopular choice for the crown, a distant choice for the crown when there were certainly more available options closer. And that ended up being really the way it went. So, right. I think she would have had a life with a great deal more fruit if she um, had not been executed at such a young age and had been able to um, study more and deepen her studies. And um, yeah, it's really tragic. So uh, I think my favorite chapter of your book was the one on um, where you paired, you have a delightful pairing 
of Dolly Parton and Hildegard of Bingen, which is so fun to think of those two in conversation with one another. Um, what do these two women share in common other than their, um, their, the fact that they don't have children, they didn't have children. So Hildegard is not alive, but. <laughs> they, they both were passionate musicians who took their music um, very seriously. And they also have both been judged on their appearance. And I think that's much easier for us to see about um, Dolly Parton that, you know, she, she embraced a look that um, some people have described as trashy and she has managed to, I think, really um, subvert that. And I find her, deeply feminist, even though she objects to, to that label. And I don't mean to denigrate her own wishes, but, you know, she's extremely smart. And I think she's willing to let other people label her whatever they want, because she knows who she is. And she does amazing work and is such a gifted artist. But Hildegard of Bingham was also judged for example, letting, um, her nuns um, sing and be seen with their, um, you know, hair down, wearing crowns, which people said, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. And she said, there's no rule against virgins um, having their hair down, that that's something that women, you know, that so-called marriageable women would be able to do. And so there's no reason why we can't look like that when we're um, singing to the Lord. Um, so I, I found them, a, that was one of the most fun chapters to write because I, I really enjoyed putting the two of them together and seeing that they're they're not so dissimilar. They also, I, I should have led with this, they both have a very deep faith. Mm. And I like that about um, Dolly Parton very much and obviously about, about Hildegard as well. And yes, they also don't have children. But what I also liked about them, about the pairing of them that I had not put it together is, um, but I think that you bring out is how pastoral they both are in their own way. So with Hildegard, it's much more obvious because she was in charge of a convent. You know, she she had a lot of uh, women that she was teaching and pastoring and leading on a regular basis. But um, Dolly too is this, figure of leadership and and has a, this sort of pastoral way I'm thinking of like her children's literacy program that has just um taken so many people under her wing or her funding of vaccinations I mean all these different things that are very pastoral outward focused shepherding in a different form than how we you know might traditionally see it but nonetheless um both of them just taking on this real shepherding role um and becoming mothers to all these people who are not their children at all, but this real uh, caregiving that is really beautiful. I loved that together. That was so fun. And one of the one of the words um, that had an effect on me from a seminary ethics class is the word generative. Mm. And I do believe that all of the women in these books, um, including Dolly and Hildegard, were very generative, even though they did not give birth to biological children. But yes, Dolly Parton has had such an impact on so many children across the country with her literacy program and with, you know, the the funding of the um, 
what became the Moderna vaccine. It's really amazing. Besides being, you know, a mentor to other women in the in her industry, and Hildegard certainly being um, a magistra in a in a monastery. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Um, so, which woman? in the book, did you most enjoy researching and writing about? Who, who did anybody surprise you? Well, the one I most enjoyed writing about, and I, I don't know if it was necessarily a surprise, but was Polly Murray. Mm. And what was surprising about her to me was how much I, I really resonated with her being multivocational because mm. I have struggled a bit with feeling called to be a parish pastor and being feeling called to be a writer, which once I went on the path to ordination, I really set aside my um, writing dreams for a long time. So it's it's really exciting for me now to have uh, this book out and to have been able to have achieved something that had been a dream since I was a child. But, uh, you know, Polly Murray, in addition to those two things, she was such a pioneer of civil rights and mm. um, such an incredible lawyer. And um, she she blows my mind. And she did not become ordained until she was 67 years old. So she had so many vocations and did so many important things before uh, serving in that way in the church. And her, I really enjoyed her writing, especially her autobiographical writing. For those who haven't heard of Polly Murray before, um, or who've only heard the name in passing and aren't exactly sure where to mentally place her, um, tell us a, a teeny bit, give us a little context on the, the arc of her life. Polly Murray was the first um, Black female uh, Episcopal priest. Uh, and she was also a lawyer. Uh, she was either the first or one of the first women at um, Howard Law School. She, you know, advocated for um, integrated uh, buses for, you know, I think, gosh, was it 10 or 20 years before Rosa Parks, who I also wrote about in the book and is also amazing. But so she was a a civil rights leader and uh, an Episcopal priest and a lawyer. And in recent times, she has also um, been held up as someone who, had she lived today as opposed to when she did, might have um, been a member of the the trans community. And for me, that um, I don't want, I don't feel comfortable reading back into it that way. So I did not play that up uh, in in the book. I think it's in a in a footnote, but because of of that, she um, has been, you know, I've been reading more about her lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's such a um, reading about how how early she was involved in the civil rights movement was really inspiring. And I didn't I I had heard her name before, but I didn't know very much about her. Um, and yeah, she was really a courageous person. Um, and I also enjoyed the, what you wrote about Rosa Parks as well. I didn't know that she didn't have children and seeing her, a fuller picture of her, uh, not just the moment on the bus, 
but uh, her lifelong um, activism and gifts and involvement in uh, her church and all of that was also uh, really inspiring to read about. I loved learning about her involvement um, in her church and was also so surprised at how she really did not benefit from her activism in her lifetime that no. she would be asked to speak and be a part of things. And, um, you know, she was still working as um, a seamstress and, you know, very much manual labor to try to make ends meet. And I hadn't realized she didn't have children either until I was searching for people to write about. And I thought, oh my gosh, Rosa Parks, that's amazing. Oh, I, that was, yeah, that was sobering to read about how she's, she's household name. And yet at, during her um, activism, she was uh, sort of sidelined in a lot of ways. And so, um, yeah. And she was a bit more militant than, People would have, you know, yeah. Wanna, well, I think I think sometimes the story is told like it's accidental or something, you know, like oh, she was tired, so she said no, uh, I don't want to move. But really, how it was that was part of a full set of life decisions and processes for her of of um, her uh, care for justice and for other people. So yeah, yes, yes. Um. Well, we are coming up on the end of the episode could you tell us um where people can find you online if they are interested in learning more about what you're up to absolutely i have a website elizabethfelicetti.com i'm the rector of saint david's episcopal church in north chesterfield virginia so they can uh, go to the church's website um and my second book will be coming out from Erdman's in the in the next year so you can also find me at Erdman's or on the website formerly known as Twitter I'm at um, Bizfell so yes I would love to connect with any of your listeners online and I want to uh, I didn't ask you about this but I know your your second book is coming out and you've had a very long and tough battle with cancer and that your second book is about prayers in in these really challenging times right of yes um, yes and it's a a book I um co-authored with another priest that we both in um battles with you know we both almost died um hers was from uh, a MRSA infection and mine was um lung cancer as a non-smoker and we realized for both of us that the way that we had approached people in prayer, the way we had been trained to do that wasn't always helpful. And so our book is called uh, Irreverent Prayers on Talking to God When You're Seriously Sick. And it's a collection of prayers. And unfortunately, I had a recurrence of my cancer uh, this past year. And I was able to take some of our prayers into the hospital with me. And it was so amazing that I thought, wow, we really did have prayers about all of these really um, unfortunate things. And also to see where there were gaps. So I've been lucky to be able to use um, this work as a, as a patient, as as someone actively fighting again. Yeah. And and thank you for, for sharing that and making that accessible for other people who are feeling a lot of the, um, a lot of that same battle of uh, 
it's hard to have words. So yeah, thank you. But yeah, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming on. It was wonderful chatting with you you about all these women. Well, I I loved being here. I love listening to old books with Grace. So it was really a thrill to get to come. Thank you so much. I always wanted to answer those questions about the writer (laughs) and the literary character. So that was great. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Thank you for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and uh, it really helps me out if you enjoyed this show. If you leave a rating and a review on the podcast platform of your choice, uh, it really helps me out and it helps other people to find Old Books with Grace. You can find me online at Old Books with Grace on Instagram or on Twitter at Grace Hammond, PhD. And of course, If you do want to sign up for the launch group of Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, I would be delighted to have you. And that link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. And next time we'll be talking about George MacDonald, the great Victorian novelist. (laughs) 